Uh, good evening, church. I'm uh, going to be reading the Bible now. Our reading is from John chapter 4, starting at verse 1 and going to verse 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samarian woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, <coughs> the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship in the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I the one speaking to you, I am he.
Well, it's great to be together tonight, and it's looking forward to uh, opening up this word in John chapter 4. In fact, one of the most uh, encouraging passages and challenging passages in Scripture, which speaks about God's love for broken people with empty lives and how He comes to fill us with meaning and significance and forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, once I was at the uh, Downing Centre local court in Liverpool Street, Sydney. If you don't know about the court system, this is the big courtrooms. And uh, I was waiting to give testimony in a small case, but I observed as I sat there, and I had to wait all morning, and then it went into lunch, so I had to wait pretty much all day. I observed the brokenness of the people awaiting their magistrate's judgment. Some of the people in the room or sitting around in the lounges looked angry. Some looked quite frightened. Others looked lost. They didn't know where they belonged. Some wept. And I was simply a witness, so I was more relaxed. But I tell you, as I looked around, there was brokenness everywhere. And while I was there, I met a pretty loud and yet friendly woman. Um, she just started talking to me, and uh, these things happen. And uh, she told me about her life. She had lived a hard life. She said she had had many hurts. Uh, she was divorced. She abused alcohol. She committed some serious crimes. It's funny what they tell you sitting outside in the lounge area waiting to go into court. She said, I said, what are you here for? What are you hoping for? She said, I'm hoping for the leniency of the courts that I can travel overseas to bring back my children who've been overseas to see their father. And as she found out I was a minister and uh, she said, oh, well, I attended a Seventh-day Adventist church, and, uh, but I, I get drunk a lot, she said. I do read the Psalms, and that's really helpful for me. And so there's quite a, a strange conversation there with this woman. And I remind her in the midst of that, that God loved her deeply. God cared for her. And then I quietly prayed for her. The critic, James Hunnicker, write, Life is like an onion. You peel off layer after layer, and you find there is nothing in it. Well, except tears, perhaps. And I think the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4 would have agreed with that sentiment. It's not too difficult from the little we know to imagine the kind of person she was. He was a woman looking for happiness, and yet she found brokenness after brokenness after brokenness. Happiness kept eluding her grasp. The current man in her life was number six. She had had five husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband. See, as hard as she tried, she had failed to find love and meaning in her relationships. Maybe next time, she thought, things would be better. I'll try again and again and again. But they, they didn't get any better, and the future didn't look rosy either. We know in time, age would steal her beauty. Her men friends would turn to younger women. There would be little left for her but tears. Her self-respect was already in tatters. She chose to come to an isolated spot. It's an isolated travel as well. It's where the travelers would go at the hardest time of the day to avoid the embarrassment of being shunned by all those respectable neighbors of hers. She wouldn't go to the well at the same time as the other women. Rejected, even despised in the community, I'm sure she spent many sleepless nights in misery, in tears and hopelessness. There are many like her today feeling broken and empty, searching for happiness, but only discovering emptiness and tears. We know it. there's depression everywhere, suicides daily. 
lost, empty, broken, without a seeming hope in the world. And yet in John chapter 4, John tells us that one day, quite out of the blue, quite unexpectedly, this empty woman met someone who in the space of a single conversation transformed her emptiness into a sparkling fountain of satisfaction and joy. One conversation, one meeting with Jesus changed everything. And I want you to note that this is the second conversation that John recounts to us. The first one was with Nicodemus that Matt spoke on a couple of weeks ago. And so there's Nicodemus on one hand, and there's a Samaritan woman on the other. These two could hardly, or their difference could hardly be greater. Nicodemus was learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. The woman was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable of only folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. And Jesus engages with both. Both needed Jesus, and Jesus went to them and had a conversation. I love that about Jesus. You see, he doesn't just go to the, the smart and the rich and the wealthy and the powerful. He doesn't just go to the poor and the oppressed. He goes to everyone and offers them life. And Jesus is on a mission from God, verse 4. Interesting, uh, interesting to read that as Jesus leaves Judea and heads north to Galilee, John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, verse 4. What does he mean by that? He had to go through Samaria. Now, Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Jews preferred this shorter route through Samaria when they're going from south to north. But the pious Jews avoided this particular route because they didn't want to hang out with Samaritans. They didn't want to pass through their territory so they would go east, travel across the Jordan River, and then come back. But we're told that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? It may be John's subtle way of telling us that Jesus had a meeting to engage in. It may be telling us that he had to go through there because there was a woman who needed to meet Jesus and find new life in Christ. You see, God has a plan. And God acts according to his plan to fulfill his purposes. So, friends, we are not gathered online tonight by accident either. Wherever you are, whatever home, whatever lounge room, whatever dining room, God sees you, God knows you, and God wants to show his love to you. Jesus had to go through Samaria because there was this woman there. And he then enters a forbidden conversation, verse 8 and 9. When Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? So he asks a question of this woman. His disciples, we're told, had gone into the town to buy food. So Jesus is alone when he asks this question. The woman is stunned and perplexed by the request. Why is that? Why is she surprised? Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Shocked she is. Surprised, perplexed, shocked. What are you doing? Why are you speaking to me? You know we don't hang out. And there's two reasons why Jesus does the unusual thing here. Well, two ways in which he does the unusual. Number one, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There have been bitter feelings between the Jews and the Samaritans for centuries. You see, when the northern kingdom, Samaria, was captured by Assyria in 722 BC, they took some of the best people out into exile and they brought in some other people into the land and they intermarried. 
So what was uh, God's people, Jewish people, were now intermarried with pagans. They became the Samaritans in the north. In the south, when they were taken to exile in Babylon, they then returned 70 years later. They, as they returned, they looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds, not true Jews. They'd intermarried, they, they'd set up other gods. But more than that, they set up a rival temple. We know that the main temple's in Jerusalem, right? They set up another temple on Mount Gerizim towards the end of the 2nd century BC, which was later destroyed. There you have. They saw them as half-castes. They're not true Jews. We don't associate. We don't eat together. And they served at different temples. You see, the Samaritans, if you didn't know, had developed their own religious heritage based simply on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That's it. That was their Bible. And they focused on Mount Gerizim rather than Jerusalem and its temple. But secondly, Jesus was ignoring popular opinion which disapproved of any respectable Middle Eastern man having a private conversation with a woman in public. There's a rabbinic citation which says this, one should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with someone else's wife because of the gossip of men. It is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. Jesus breaks conventions to bring his love and hope to, to broken people. You see, he's speaking to a woman, he's speaking to her even more controversially when she is alone. Whereas the good thing about Jesus is he doesn't follow conventions. He'll do whatever is necessary to bring his love to us. And I think there's a significant lesson there for us too, as you're listening. Jesus is not bothered by who you are, what the world thinks of you. Society or your family or your workmates may have told you that you're not as good as them. You're not valuable. You're not that important. Maybe you're born overseas. Maybe you're unemployed. You don't have as much money as others. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you're an unmarried parent or you're working class or you're not brilliant. You're not thin and pretty. Uh, you're not good at sport. You don't have 5,000 Instagram followers. You're no influencer. Or maybe because you're a woman. And Jesus, though, doesn't think like that, does he? He talks to a male Jewish aristocrat, Nicodemus, on one hand. He talks to a female Samaritan peasant on the other. And the social contrast could not have been more extreme, but Jesus speaks to both with equal concern. But let me say to you today, no matter who you are, that Jesus is interested in you. You're sitting around at home thinking, uh, no one really cares, no one rings me up, no one takes an interest in me, uh, I don't have a job, I don't know where I'm going to get any money, I feel empty. Jesus says, I see you, I know you, I love you. More than that, he says, not only do I say those words, says Jesus, but I died for you on a cross to prove it. I took the penalty for your sins and your failures. A number of years ago, I was speaking at another church, and I'd also spoken at one of their camps. And I met a young couple, maybe late 20s, I think they were. Now, we're married, and uh, I said, tell me your story. And said, our story was that we pretty much lived on the streets around the King's Cross area. Uh, we were lost, we were broken, we were empty, we really didn't have any direction in life. But there was this Christian ministry in the middle of King's Cross, and it had a drop-in center. You'd go and get a meal, and people would talk to you. And, uh, and so we met at this place. We both broken and lost, didn't know what to do with life. We ended up in this place, and we met Christians who told us about Jesus. We met Christians who loved us and cared for us. 
and we were changed by Jesus. Our empty lives were transformed. And uh, they said, you won't believe where we got married. I said, where did you get married? So, you know, the, one of the elders is like a pastor. That's a brethren church there. We got married in the backyard of the elder's house. I said, you know, the, the church, the elders and the other people in that church, that little brethren church, it was out in the eastern suburbs. I said, they, they put on the food. They put on the celebration. They did the wedding. They did everything for us. I said, once we've met Jesus, our lives have been changed and we've been put into a loving Christian community. We thank God for these people and what they've done for us. Friends, our witness and our acceptance of people and our love for people can have a powerful impact. We need to love people as Jesus loves people. But I want to suggest that uh, Jesus' example also teaches us that Christian believers should be active in their communities. As Jesus went out to a place where he could meet someone, we need to be going out whether it's sporting teams or swimming clubs or rotary or lines or political parties, whatever it happens to be, we need to be out in the community meeting people who need to hear about Jesus. If we don't meet them, we'll never have a chance to tell them about God's love. Jesus then moves on. Having uh, met this woman and broken conventions, he offers living water, he says. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, if you only had any idea... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, she has no idea what he's talking about. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. I'm not talking about physical water, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give, give them, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus moves from small talk to challenge her spiritual emptiness, doesn't he? But the woman, just like Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus when Jesus said, You must be born again? He says, What do you mean? You can't go in your womb and come out again? He's got no idea. Even Nicodemus, this well-educated, smart guy, theologically trained, had no idea what Jesus was talking about. He only thought about the physical terms. And here's a woman, again, thinking, water, living water, what are you talking about? Where do you get the water in the well? So Nicodemus and the woman, in one sense, they're very similar, aren't they? Jesus raises the level. Jesus takes them to another part, takes them to another spiritual level. But you see, she doesn't get it. Because she does not yet perceive Jesus' glory. Jesus is still a, a weary, thirsty Jewish traveler, and she thinks he can, give him some, he can get her some good water so she doesn't have to come back again. See, after the wedding of Cana, remember when Jesus turned the water into wine a couple of weeks ago? The disciples saw his glory and believed in him. She has not yet seen his glory. She will in a moment. The whole idea of the illusion of water in the Old Testament, Don Carson says, the water is the satisfying eternal life mediated by the Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world can provide. He's talking about living water, this new life that God will bring. In the Old Testament, we have words like this, Isaiah 55, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters that you may live. It's a beautiful image in the Bible, the living water, the water that brings life, even eternal life. But you don't come to Jesus until you see his glory. You don't believe in him until you see his glory. 
And see, many of our friends just see Jesus as this prophet or this first century Jew that we have created extra stories about. He's just a man. He's not the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They don't see his glory, so they don't come to him. But you see, unless we come to Jesus, we won't find fulfillment, we won't find satisfaction. We won't deal with that emptiness that is inside us, whether you admit it or not. Pascal illustrated it this way. He said that each human being is born into this world with a God-shaped vacuum inside. An emptiness that can only be filled by God, by knowing God, loving God, receiving God's love and His forgiveness. No accomplishment or wealth or status will ever satisfy. I read a story about a lady called Tracy Blackburn in the book Descending into Greatness. Let me tell you her story. She said, Tracy Blackburn, at a relatively early age, thought she had a firm grip on joy. She had, at the very least, the trappings of success. Listen to what she had. She drove a BMW. She wore the most stylish clothes. And she lived the lifestyle of the jet setter she had become. This life was beyond her wildest dreams, and she was, as dreamers go, a pretty wild one. As a high-ranking executive with a leading investment company, she, she had the world at her fingertips. She said, I couldn't fathom life without all those wonderful, glorious perks. She had power, she had respect, that precise addiction she felt she needed to find value, or so she thought. That was before her blood pressure and weight soared. Her power and her health slipped away. The American dream she began to learn was exceedingly costly. The pace, the pressure, the competition began to outrank the glorious perks. Her doctor told her to change her lifestyle immediately. That day, she quit her job. She prayed to a God who was, she was not sure was there. It was a plea for help. How could she now find joy when she gave up everything else? So she had watched the American dream disintegrate into a mixture of exhaustion and pain. She could no longer count on her bank book for personal worth. What then? Where could she find hope and, and worth and value? So it is the question that echoes across our country with a ring of desperation. So Tracy had faced up to the truth of her emptiness. And until we face the same truth, we'll never call out to God for help. I love the fact that Jesus said, people who are healthy do not need a doctor, only those who are sick. See, a doctor can do nothing for a patient who denies he has a problem. I'm pretty good with doctors. If there's something wrong with me, I go to the doctor, I go to the car, I go to the physio. Some people never go to the doctor. I'm happy to check me out. I have so, so many issues, uh, small issues, by the way, that I just want to make sure it's checked out. But if I don't go see my doctor, I don't get the help. If I don't see my chiropractor, I don't get the help. If I don't see the physio, I don't get the help. Jesus says, you've got to realize that you're empty and you need help before you come to him. Then Jesus exposes her spiritual emptiness. And Jesus goes a little bit further with her in this conversation. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Come on, Jesus, that's not unfair, don't you reckon? Yeah, come on, Jesus, what are you getting at? He's really going to push into this woman's brokenness until she admits what's going on. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus already knew this. This may be true that all the former husbands have died or been divorced, but Jesus won't let her, her off the hook that easily. You are right when you say you have no husband. So he knew all the way along 
The fact is you have had five husbands. Come on, Jesus. The man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Jesus is getting too close and personal for her liking. And she's going to uh, ask a different theological question so she doesn't have to deal with what Jesus has just said. We often throw diversions, don't we, when we don't want to face Jesus. Years ago, when I was the youth pastor at Springwood Baptist Church, uh, we took our, our young people, we took some buses and cars, we took them over to Terrigal on the Central Coast. Right? Wild party for the, the mountains people. And uh, we're on this beach, a beautiful day, and there's all these teenage girls and boys running around everywhere. And then I noticed that uh, someone warned me about this, this strange-looking guy, scrawny, older guy with hair down his, all down his back and a big beard, looked like he was a homeless guy, kept following our girls around, our teenagers, and having conversation with them. They're very nice and gracious and chatting to him. He wasn't doing anything abusive or anything. And they said, Ange, do you think you might want to go and have a chat to this guy, see how he's going? So I thought, I've got to protect the girls and make sure they're okay and safe. And they're all 15, 16 years of age at this stage. So I went up to him. I said, hi, how are you going? And uh, what's your name? He said, my name's Andy. I said, my name's Ange. I'm the youth pastor. I'm with these uh, young people here. We're from Springwood in the Blue Mountains. I said, great. And as we talked after a while and said, oh, yeah, I'm really happy with my life. And Yeah, no, things are really good. And then I looked at him and I just went, sometimes you've got to ask the question. I said, Andy, stop. Andy, are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. No, no, I'm Andy. Are you really happy? Well, the other girl started to fade away. Andy, are you really happy? At that point, he said, no, I'm not. I'm not happy, I'm miserable. I don't have much going on in my life. I don't have much money, I don't have many friends. I said, have you ever gone to a church... They can help you. They can tell you about Jesus. Jesus can help you. He said, oh, I've got some friends in church. I haven't been for a while, but this pastor so-and-so and pastor so-and-so, they look out for me every so often. I said, Andy, maybe it's time you go back to church, speak to one of these pastors, get to know Jesus, because Jesus can make you a new person. Jesus can forgive your sins. He can fill up that God-shaped vacuum in your life. I will never forget that conversation with Andy. Friends, let me tell you, there are people everywhere who say, I'm okay, I'm okay when they're not. And this woman, she diverts the conversation. She doesn't want to talk about her five husbands and the man that she's living with is not her husband. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Let's get into a theological debate. Cover up the issue that I'm dealing with. Much easier to talk theology than to deal with the real issues at hand. People do it all the time, don't they? When they're confronted by their own sin and their failure and their brokenness, they throw in a red heading, herring. Why are there so many denominations? That's why I don't believe in God. Or why is there so much suffering in the world? Some of them are good questions. But many times they're just screens, smoke screens, so they don't deal with what's really going on in their lives. Jesus then explains true worship. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Friends, Jesus makes three points of this one right here. Number one, the Jerusalem temple and Mount Gerizim site will both be done away with. 
It won't be about where you worship any longer. Secondly, salvation springs from the Jews. So you Samaritans, you got it wrong. You are outside the stream of God's revelation. The true gospel is going to come through the Jewish nation. And then he says, an hour is coming. He says, there is a time, literally there's an hour coming and is already here in the person of Jesus when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's not about where, it's about how. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, we now worship in a new way. When uh, we have the truth about Jesus, we worship the truth about Jesus and who he is. So the hour, I think, is a reference to his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation that will replace temple worship for a new spirit and truth worship. It is in spirit and in truth, he says. With the gift of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the gospel, it's a new way of worshipping. And then he declares himself to be the Messiah. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. She knows that much. And she's probably looking forward to it. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Can you imagine this conversation with this woman? There's no one else there. Jesus and this woman, broken, empty, lost. And he reveals the truth to the Samaritan outcast that he is the Messiah. You know, Jesus would not tell the Jewish people that he was the Messiah. He wouldn't own up to it. Because if he owned up to the Jewish people that he was a Messiah, they'd had political and military baggage. They want to make him king as they tried to do a few times. Let's overthrow the Romans. But here he is with this woman, one-on-one conversation. He said, no, no, I'm the Messiah. The one that you've been waiting for, the one everyone's been waiting for, I'm him. Because Jesus is the anointed king. He doesn't come as a military king. He comes to die. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That's what he's come to do. And friends, we see a transformed woman. Her life has taken a significant change at this point. This one conversation has transformed her life. She's met the Messiah who can deal with her sin and her emptiness, wipe away her tears and bring a fountain of joy. But more, this woman becomes a passionate witness for Jesus. New converts, I reckon, are often the best evangelists, aren't they? I remember as a teenager when I became a Christian, we just told everyone about Jesus. At school, at soccer teams, wherever we were, you've got, to, you've got to believe in Jesus. He's the only way to heaven. You've got to trust in him, otherwise you're going to hell, you're lost, you're broken. Come on, Jesus is the only hope. I love the new converts. Here's a new convert. She goes back to her town, to the village where she's from. Then leaving her water jar, she come to get water, but she leaves it there. Can you imagine? The woman went back to the town and said to the people, she probably gathered them up, you won't believe who I've met, the Messiah, the Messiah. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. He seems to be a prophet, he knows things. Could this be the Christ? Love this. She's not keeping this message to herself. With the little she knows, she is so excited about this news, she rushes back to tell everyone. You don't keep the gospel to yourself. Keep the gospel to yourself. Don't just get saved, get your ticket to heaven and keep the gospel to yourself. It's for everyone. In verse 39, we're skipping down a few verses. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. You imagine now, not only has she told them, they're following her down to meet Jesus. 
And because of his words, many more became believers. I love that. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. They've just seen his glory, don't you think? You know, the woman at the beginning didn't see him. He was just this guy who's going to give her water, wondering where he's going to, where she, he's going to get the water to give her. Now she's seeing him as the Messiah. She sees his glory. She tells everyone, and everyone comes and hears about him. Jesus makes that difference. Friends, there's some great stories that came out of the, the Olympics, and a number of Christian testimonies, and you've heard some. But Sydney McLaughlin, and she's not from Sydney, she's from America, there on the screen, is a 21-year-old U.S. hurdler who won Olympic gold in the women's 400-meter hurdles. McLaughlin was baptized last year. She shared on her Instagram at the time she'd spent her whole life running from God only to realize he was all she ever needed. Don't you love that? Running from God, she realized he was all she ever needed. See, she was empty and she needed someone to fill that God-shaped vacuum in her life. She needed someone who, who loved her and cared for her. Instead of running from God, she realized he was everything. And after her medal, she wrote, What an honor it was to be able to represent not only my country, but also the kingdom of God. What I have in Christ is far greater than what I have or I don't have in life. I pray my journey may be a clear depiction of submission and obedience to God. Empty lives filled by Jesus. What a beautiful testimony. Let me conclude. Are you empty tonight? Christian friends around you, but are you empty tonight? You need Jesus to come and fill you with love and forgiveness and reconciliation. Call upon him tonight. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper in a moment. We're going to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Make an opportunity to come back to God, to repent, to ask him to fill you, to take away that emptiness and that brokenness. It's because life is not simply like an onion where you just keep peeling and there's nothing in it. No, no, no. We are valuable, created men and women of God with dignity and with purpose. Now, if you're a believer tonight, secondly, then listen to the words of Jesus. Verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not say four months more than the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. You and I have this wonderful privilege and responsibility to go to the Samaritan women of the world, to go to the Nicodemuses of the world, and to bring good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. For Jesus and Jesus alone transforms empty lives. Let me pray. Loving God, good God, merciful God, we thank you for this great story in the Gospel of John where we see the mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the radical nature of Jesus to bring hope to an empty, broken woman. Lord, we thank you for coming to our lives, turning our lives around, filling us with hope and joy and meaning and value and significance and purpose. Thank you for adopting us into your family through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit. You've given us living water and that we can now live for you and for your glory. Please help us, empower us, transform us, and help us to help other people meet this Jesus that we have met 
for the glory of your name. Amen.